Hello, my name is Phoebe Smith, and I want to tell you about my book Wayfarer. Love, loss and life on Britain's ancient paths. Wayfarer tells the story of how I lost my way and found it again by walking the ancient pilgrim paths in Britain and elsewhere. Along my journey, I found hope, confronted past experiences and learned more about myself than I ever thought I would. My book, Wayfarer, is out now and available in hardback, ebook and audiobook. On this month's Wonder Woman podcast. Forgiveness is the right thing. If you don't forgive, so it's a disease. Yeah, you get now sick. You must forgive. I speak to a former Robben Island inmate in the South African prison where Nelson Mandela was held. I also go hunting for fossilised megalodon teeth to discover Florida's wild side. We've been finding shark teeth for years growing up here, um, just walking along the beach. And I catch up with author and adventurer Levison Wood to hear all about his life on the road. It's been a sort of almost a conveyor belt of go away for whatever, six, seven, eight months. Mm-hmm. Back, you know, I start writing immediately. Coming up as well, I offer hard-earned travel hacks, find the best places in the world to experience close encounters of the wildlife kind, and talk the best travel gear for all your adventures. Plus, I'll be revealing this episode's Wonder Woman of the Month, the traveller that history books have forgotten. You're listening to the Wonder Woman podcast, an audio travel magazine with me, Phoebe Smith, exploring off-the-beaten-track destinations, wild spaces, wildlife encounters, and the unsung heroes behind conservation efforts. Come wander with me. I'm stood at a beach here in Florida, in an area called Sarasota. It's a white sandy beach with fine crystal clear waters and beautifully soft sand yet there's no more than just a handful of tourists here and in fact most of the beach dwellers are local this is an area located on the west coast of florida away from the crowds and theme parks of orlando and it's actually much more than just a place for people it's also a haven wildlife. And this episode, I'm going to be taking you for a wander through the wild west of Florida. I know what you're thinking. There's no more to the Sunshine State than Mickey Mouse, right? I was as sceptical as you. I thought that the only magic here would come courtesy of Disney World. But the more I asked around, the more I realised I'd been focusing all my attention on just the headline-grabbing portion of Florida. While speaking to locals, I heard about a very special place, one that held the remains of one of the oldest species of shark known to man. Its name? Megalodon. Thought to be one of the biggest and most powerful underwater killers that ever lived, scientists estimate that these giant sharks were around 18 metres or 59 feet in length. That's around the same length as a lane in a bowling alley. If you compare that to the largest great white sharks you'll find nowadays, they are just six and a half metres or 20 feet. So we're talking some enormous predators. There's a certain section of water beside one of the beaches where even just wandering along the shore, you might find some of the smaller fossilised shark teeth. But 
to be in with a chance of finding part of a megalodon fossil, well, for that, I would need to head under the waves. I'm on the Gold Coast boat with Captain Josh and we're about to head out to go and look for shark teeth under the water. Um, so Captain Josh, why are there shark teeth under the water where we're going? Oh, that's a good question. Just uh, The Gulf of Mexico is um, a breeding ground for a large number of sharks. Um, it's just a great place to find some fossilized teeth, especially down here off of Casperin Beach in Venice. Um, the reason so is because the coastline's eroding so fast. Um, so it is constantly uncovering uh, fossils. And, and how old are we talking? How old are these fossils about? Oh, they're millions. Um, you know, any tooth we find that's black is going to be well over a million years old. Um, Megalodon have been extinct for four million years, I believe, and they find Megalodon teeth here all the time. So I'm here with Nicole, who's the dive master, who's going to take me to find the shark teeth. So Nicole, how long have you been doing this? Um, about five or six years. And what got you into it in the first place? Uh, my brother, actually, yeah. He's a diver and he kind of suggested I do it and we've been diving together ever since. And can you remember the first time that you found the shark teeth down there? Um, the first time, I've, we've been finding shark teeth for years growing up here, um, just walking along the beach, but uh, probably my first one of my first open water dives with my brother ever I actually found one diving off of the beach in Venice. What was it like to find one? Super exciting. Um, you know, you always think about finding the big megalodon teeth and you finally get one. It's very exciting. How many megalodon teeth have you found? Just a handful, not a lot. It's not a dive that I do very often, but yeah. I do do it and we find them sometimes. And what else can we expect to see down there? Uh, just lots of fossils. Visibility isn't great, but there's all sorts of different fossils. There's mammoth teeth, um, mammoth bones, whale, whale vertebrae a lot of people find, um, shark teeth. Shortly after the briefing with Nicole, we headed underwater. She mentioned that visibility wouldn't be great, but it was much worse than that. It was so bad, in fact, that I couldn't even see my hand if I held it out at arm's length in front of my face. So we decided for safety to tie ourselves together with cord and then we began our descent down into the unknown. At around six metres, we reached the ancient riverbed that they call the Boneyard. Wearing gloves, I plunged my hands into the thick mud, feeling around for something, anything, flat and hard. Every time I thought I found something, I had to bring it right up to my mask to have any hope of inspecting it. If it looked black rather than grey or white, I bagged it up in the string sack I had strapped to my dive vest. We were under the water for around 25 minutes. It was cold and it was dark. Suddenly, Nicole grabbed my arm and motioned to ascend. I couldn't see her, but rather felt her gesticulating upwards wildly. I later found out that the boat's anchor line had just hit her in the back and in the low visibility she'd worried it was a shark coming to find us, which does somewhat explain her haste. Despite that, between us we'd already got a fair haul of fossils to look through, so we returned to the deck to look at our loot. 
So, Nicole, we're back up after diving in what can only be described as like a milky soup. <laughs> Are those typical conditions? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. The rain and the winds have stirred up the water a lot for us. But do you think we did pretty well with what we found? I think we did pretty good. Yeah. Especially for your first time and yeah. no visibility. I think we yeah. did good. <laughs> but had we done well? Captain Josh was on hand to offer his verdict. So you've looked through the spoils that we've brought back to the boat. What do you think we've got there that we found? I think you have a, a dugong rib bone. And I didn't see your shark's teeth. Probably tiger shark or ah. sand tiger shark teeth. Yeah. Were they long? Yes. Yeah. Probably tiger shark teeth. Uh, yeah. Sand tigers are real long and skinny teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I see. And then any ideas on the smaller pieces? with the lines on them? Small. Yeah, kind of long. I say um, stingray barb. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. It's yeah. usually stingray barbs or um, jaw bones of stingrays, yeah. stuff like that. Okay, cool, so we did pretty well considering? You did well <laughs> with no visibility. I think you guys did great. <laughs> Thank you, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Though I hadn't seen much underwater, On closer inspection, I had done well with the fossils. Not only had I collected the dugong rib that Captain Josh identified and some stingray barbs, but I'd also got a specimen of the tooth of a now-extinct snaggletooth shark. All in all, the treasure hunt had been a success. But seeing extinct creatures wasn't exactly what I had in mind when I thought of checking out Wild Florida, I wanted to see something very much more alive. So from there, I journeyed north to Crystal River so I could have a wildlife encounter swimming with the manatees. Now, manatees are a relation to the dugong, whose fossilised rib I'd just found, but they're different. Affectionately referred to as a sea cow as they munch on the floating greenery in oceans and rivers, these warm-blooded mammals, which kind of resemble seals, though they are larger, more rotund, with a whiskered face and a huge scoop tail. Well, they need to leave the food-rich ocean in the winter to warm in the naturally hot springs in this part of the state. I'd love to play you a soundbite from my experience of coming face-to-face with a manatee. The phrase life-changing can all too often be bandied around when it comes to wildlife encounters. But when it comes to manatees, it is the only real way to describe it. The moment you lock eyes, the way that they come right up to your face and feel at your mask with their prehensile lip, and how you feel when they permit you to stroke their back, then roll over so you can do the same on their tummy, just like a playful Labrador puppy. But sadly, you can't capture all that underwater. You just hear bubbles and the odd squeal of delight from me, granted. But take it from me that if you haven't considered doing it before, you must. If only to show the locals at Crystal River just how valuable these endangered species are alive. Their relatives in the Amazon are nearly extinct due to habitat loss, poaching and boat strike. Tourism really does have the power to change their fate. What I can share with you instead is another little wild place I found after I'd swum with the manatees. I've driven west from Sarasota coast uh, to head inland for a bit and I'm sat, uh, it's very strange, around me there is sort of big motorways and roadways all around me but 
before all of them, the buffer, is this huge network of wetlands which are called celery fields. Now the reason they're called celery fields is that this area always had wetlands in and then in the 1900s they decided to drain it for agriculture and grew celery here, which does explain the name. But they realised after a lot of flooding that the wetlands here served a really good purpose and that was to stop the local river flooding out the towns. And so they finally, in the 1990s, restored it, filled the water again, allowed it to fill itself. And as the water came back, so too did the bird life. It seemed to mimic other places I've discovered elsewhere in the world. Places where man thought they knew better and rid an area of nature only to realise that nature itself was solving a problem that they didn't even know that they had. In the case of celery fields, it was flooding that the wetlands prevented. And we've seen similar issues in places like the UK, where tracts of trees and bushes have been cleared for grouse shooting, leading to a mass runoff of water that the roots of the plantations had been soaking up, which has then led to floods destroying towns and villages and people's homes. Living in harmony with wildlife is key to its survival. As human beings encroach further into landscapes that the animals had way before we started to claim them, this wildlife-human conflict can be seen in many places, such as India with tigers, Sri Lanka with elephants. And so before I left Florida, I wanted to go in search of one of their most iconic yet malign critters, who, despite the odd headline saying otherwise, locals have seemingly embraced as a bold and eye-catching icon. What am I talking about? The alligator. And so I wandered inland, hot on its tail. It's early morning and I'm in Mayaka River State Park. You can hear a, a woodpecker and other birds. Um, it's just a little past eight o'clock and I'm following a trail. No one else is around. Um, and the trail I'm walking on is a permit-only trail, and they only give out 30 permits a day. So I got up crack of dawn to get one of those permits and actually got the first one, because no one seems to be as eager as me. Now, the reason I did that was because I'm on a, a rough sort of trail in what they call a wilderness preserve. And at the end of it is a place called Deep Hole and it's said that when you get there, there is a mass congregation of alligators, which of course are famously a Florida animal. So, early morning, sun's out, birds are singing. What a good way to start the day. It's funny approaching a water's edge knowing that there's alligators in it. And... I'd seen online a lot of pictures taken in winter, this time of year, January, um, of a mass gathering of hundreds of alligators, and I was told to expect that. Um, and I came down to the water's edge to be greeted with way more vultures and heron than a single alligator, although I could see the prints in the mud, in the dried-up mud, but they look quite old. And then I just stood on the lake shore, thinking, there's nothing here. And one by one, some alligators have popped up. I mean, a good safe distance away, just gliding through the water pretty effortlessly, not stressed, not frantic, really beautiful animals. The sun's just reflecting beautifully off the water. 
the grasses is just catching the wind and just the gentle movement of the alligator just, just goes with this very sort of languid scene. In awe of the place I'd found, with no one around, but also a certain lack of alligators, I headed back to the main park entrance and quizzed a ranger. Due to the red tape, I didn't record him, but he advised me why the alligators were not at the deep hole in that often seen mass numbers. Speaking to the ranger... It appears that the deep hole, which is a sinkhole, which effectively traps the fish in, which is why all the crocs come to feed, is flooded out. Um, and this kind of bears true throughout the whole of Mayaka at the moment. Um, the wetlands are even wetter <laughs> than normal. But what that has meant um, for me on my trip has been an absolute abundance of bird life um, just for about 10 minutes sat by the water. You know, I've seen glossy ibis, I've seen some spoonbills, some little blue heron, um, some grebe, osprey even. Um, I've seen uh, turkey vulture, which they get me every time. I absolutely love them. They're ugly, so ugly, they're beautiful. And seen a tricoloured heron as well, kind of leaping um, across the top of the water. I was still determined to track down an alligator that I could capture a clear photograph of. And so based on the ranger's advice, I went to two known hotspots, which clearly and finally paid off, bringing my Florida hunt for the wilder side to a perfect conclusion. I saw a mother and three babies. One of them still had its stripes, obviously was probably this year's baby. Uh, the other two were perhaps um, a little bit older, maybe a, a yearling. And then on the last thing, the bird walk, where I saw masses of bird life, um, there was also a huge alligator that had just decided to uh, to come and um, and and sit right by the boardwalk path. So I managed to get an amazing shot of a proper Florida gator. So I think when it comes to saying wild Florida, I can give that one big tick. That was me in Sarasota and Crystal River, Florida, where I must admit all my preconceptions of the state were completely shattered. Rather than a Disney-obsessed place full of crowds, I found an abundance of places where nature thrives and people work hard to ensure it's protected. Now, there's no beauty about the bush. That flight to Florida was long. More than 10 hours, in fact. And as is so often the way, coming home, I had to rush straight from the airport to a meeting somewhere else. So getting sleep on the aircraft was so, so super important. But like most people, I used to really struggle with being able to rest on a flight. But there's a few things I've learned over the years that's helped me to more easily grab some shut-eye. So it's time for, you guessed it, my travel hack of the month. So this episode, I'm going to be talking about sleeping on a plane and how best to do it. So I think the first thing we've got to discuss is comfort. If you're not comfortable, you won't sleep. So this is not the time to wear jeans or lots of makeup or do your hair in a really kind of fancy way. It's all about the loose fitting clothes. And if you don't even want to wear the loose fitting clothes to go through security and check in, at least take some in your hand luggage so you can get changed once you've been through all that. Personally, I tend to wear either a pair of leggings or some loose fitting cotton trousers, which are basically pyjama bottoms that I can sort of get away with as daytime trousers. <laughs> I also wear flight compression socks 
Then I always take a pair of warm sort of woolly socks as well because the blankets they give you are never, ever big enough to cover your entire body. And I always do take an eye mask so I can block out the light because I always seem to get a seat next to someone who wants to read. Which leads me to the next vital item, your pillow. Now forget these newfangled, jazzy, neck-hugging, kind of face-hugging contraptions. I take an actual pillow from off my bed, a full-size, very comfy pillow that I know I can sleep on. Now, the first thing I do is refuse the meals if they're not at the right times. I once went on a flight that took off at 11pm and then started to serve the evening meal at 1am. That is crazy. I ate well before I got on the flight at the normal dinner slash tea time, depending on where you're from. And then as soon as I got on the plane... I got changed and I got ready for bed. Don't drink. Now, I know this may sound counterintuitive because when we've had one, maybe two, three or four of those small bottles of wine they like to give you on the plane, we do fall asleep quicker. That is a fact. But the quality of sleep that we get is nowhere near good enough. We wake up a lot and we also need the toilet, which also wakes us up a lot more. So stay off the alcohol, just drink water and get yourself off to bed and get yourself ready. And so that's doing all the things you do at home. So I always take in my hand luggage stuff so I can clean my teeth. I can wash my face. I can brush my hair. I put on some moisturizer, whatever it is that your routine is. Enforce this, like take those items with you and use them on the plane to tell yourself it's bedtime. But I'd say of all these tips, the most important thing is try not to worry. Because if you do all the things I've just told you, even if you don't actually manage to fall properly into a deep sleep, as long as you're in a restful state, that tends to be enough. Now that was my travel hack of the month. Um, The insight that I give every episode to make travel just that little bit more pleasant. Now the subject of this month may have been sleep, But I have to say that I've recently returned from a trip that made me anything but sleepy. I went back to South Africa. And I say back because I was last there in 2007, virtually to the day. Now, on my first trip there, I visited a place called Robben Island, which is the prison where Nelson Mandela was held during apartheid, where black people were famously imprisoned just for arguing that they should have the same rights as everyone else. It seems insane to me. Now, it was here that I met a wonderful man called Sparks. And I just want you to hear a little bit about his story. So I'm here on Robin Island uh, with my guide, who is an ex-political prisoner. Um, It's really good to meet you. Can you just tell me your name? Oh, my name is Sparks. S-P-A-R-K-S, Sparks. And when were you imprisoned here on Robin Island? I was here from 1983 and released in 1990, but I was sentenced for 15 years. But because of the gradual release of local prisoners, I only spent seven years. You say only. It must have been, must have felt like a lot longer than seven years. Was it a really hard time? Yes, it was very hard for me to, for those years because people were beaten brutally here in Rovneland. And they, they took your name away and gave you another name. What was your prison name here? My prison name was 5683. And, but among prisoners, you um, would call each other by your, your real names? Oh, yes, we'll call our, ourselves with our real names. 
And do you have one overriding memory of your time spent here? If, if you had to sum up what your time was like during those seven years, could you? Oh, yes, I will remember here on Robin Island. Uh, the time now they were taking uh, people and released. Even the time was released, I thought that I'll be re-arrested again and also be killed. Wow. And, and did you lose many friends when you were here? Did, did people die during your time here? Oh, yes, there were some people who died, even in detention. Yes, people died because of the torture. And there was, was there a rate of suicide here as well? Oh, yes, there were some people also committed suicide. But, but our leadership discouraged us to commit suicide because the enemy would be very delighted. And when you were finally released and, and went back, how was that going back to your normal life? Had everything changed? Well, everything changed, really, when I was released because I was now used to solitary confinement. But now I meet people now, it was a very different environment for me. And how old were you when you went in? And then how old were you when you came out? Uh, when I, I came out in, in here in Robin, I was 17 years old. Then when I came out, I was 24 years old. Wow. Then after my release, I was, I was also re-arrested under state of emergency for two years. Then I was released when I was 26 years old. And after my release, I decided to go to school. But after schooling, I couldn't find a job because of my political involvement. Then I decided to go and work for a trade union movement. And coming back here to work, when, when did you come back here to work as a guide? Well, I came here uh, during uh, 2003. Well, and what made you do it? Was, were you a bit reluctant at first? Oh, because most of us were unemployed. So it so was for it was a very, job? Yeah, it was for a job. It was very difficult for us to get a job. And how was it stepping foot back here as a, as a free man after everything you'd been through? Ah, well, as a free man, really, I'm very excited. Now I have now my children now. Really, I'm very, very happy man now. But most of us are unemployed and homeless. So I'm, I'm a person who's very lucky enough to be here. And did you ever, when you were imprisoned here, did you ever imagine you'd come back and you'd be living on the island? Well, I never thought that I would be come back. I thought that this day I will not, I will not be standing here. I will dead. I'll be dead. Really? Yeah. And and what was it like the first tour you gave? Was it quite emotional? It was quite emotional, and sometimes even I would be crying, and stop now the tour. People also will look at me, but I will recover and also say something. And has it, in a way, helped you come to terms with what happened by sort of reliving it, taking people through here and, and educating them? Ah, well, it was wonderful because now even other people, they ask some questions that I also forgot. So they also made me to, uh, to remember every yeah. now thing. And how was it? meeting people who were guards here so completely the other side of what you were here for how how do you sort of get on with people who you know sort of kept you a prisoner ah uh, well i will recall in 1983 nelson asked a question so if we are raised, what are we going to do about those people who victimize us at that time i was very young i was 17 years old i said we'll have to revenge but our leadership told us not to revenge because if we are revenging There'll be an ongoing war here in South Africa. 
so we must forget about the past and concentrate on the future. Even after 24 years of our democracy, not a single one ever revenge against those people who victimized us. So we are friends with those guards who are not be at all. Even some of the guards are staying here on Robin Island, others are coming here visiting this place. Others are remorseful, others are not remorseful at all. Wow, really? Some of them aren't even remorseful, but you still find it in your heart to forgive them and yes. just carry on? Yeah, forgiveness is the right thing. If you don't forgive, so it's a disease. Yeah, you get now sick. You must forgive. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you. A strong and powerful message from Sparks there. I was astounded to hear him talking about forgiveness. Even when it came to the security guards who didn't show remorse about what they did, I was also pretty saddened to learn that despite being political prisoners who were fighting simply for equality, many, after they were released, have not been lucky. Many are ending up homeless, suffering from depression or arguably a form of PTSD. And actually, a lot of them end up taking their own lives. Sparks had told me he was lucky, but in a way it felt like he had no choice but to go back to Robin Island if he wanted to support his family and get a job. In a way, wasn't he still a kind of prisoner there? I had to wonder. And I couldn't stop thinking about that all the way back to Cape Town. I'll be filing more from South Africa in the next episode of Wonder Woman. It's a place that truly got under my skin. South Africa, I'm sure you can imagine was a place where as well as meeting some incredible people and hearing some amazing stories I also got the chance to witness a number of exotic animals out on safari Um, they were wandering across great swathes of sort of desert land you know as they were meant to so inspired by that and also with my very close encounter with Florida's manatees I thought I'd take some time to offer you some inspiration now with this episode's top 10. Now, sometimes this will be from a particular country, sometimes even a particular city, and sometimes on a particular activity. This time, I've decided to treat you to the 10 ultimate wildlife encounters from my travels around the world. In at 10, it has to be watching elephants in South Africa. Whether you see them roaming through the desert plains or frolicking in the waterholes, they are just incredible creatures to witness in the wild. In at 9, seeing muskox in Canada. You'll find them up in the Arctic. I saw them in a place called Nunavik. And you don't so much see them, but you feel them. It's almost like thunder is coming as they run across the grassland. In at eight, walking with the rhino in Nepal. And I say walk because you'll find so many places that offer elephant-backed safari, but please don't do it. Instead, go to a place where you get to walk alongside elephants to go and see the wildlife. Because when you do and you see that rhino on eye level... It's just like nothing else you could ever understand. You're part of their environment. In at seven is lingering with lemurs in Madagascar. You might not think you can see anything at first, but go with a good local guide and they will be spotting ring-tailed lemurs, black lemurs, sportive lemurs, when you think you're just looking at nothing but trees. In at six, it's hearing the wolves howl in Yellowstone. 
and not just hearing them but seeing them too. The best giveaway to know they're nearby, other than obviously taking a guide, is to look for the wolf spotters. These are retirees who come down with their spotting scopes to see them and often will let you look through their spotting scopes to see what they are seeing. In at five, swimming with sea lions in New Zealand. You've got to be playful. If you just float on the water, they're not interested. Think of them as uh, as puppy dogs. You have to play so they want to play. In at four, it's got to be cage diving with the saltwater crocodiles in Darwin, Australia. Uh, There's a place you can go for... um, crocodiles that have been nuisance creatures um, and you can go cage diving with them and looking into such a prehistoric looking creature and it's such powerful jaws open coming at you it was uh, there are no words you just have to go and do it in at three is snorkeling with the manta rays in the Maldives I thought the Maldives was all about honeymooners and just expensive resorts which, of course, there is some of that, but actually the real stuff is under the water. You have to snorkel or dive and you will get to see them. It's like swimming with the angels. In at two, playing with the penguins in Antarctica, they have no fear of people and they'll come right up to you. So much so I was half tempted to sneak one inside my rucksack. But really, don't do that. It's kind of frowned upon. And in at one is uh, kissing the grey whales in Baja, California, which is in Mexico. Normally, you would never dream of touching a wild animal. But here in Baja, they actually come and seek you out as entertainment. And these are the same pangas, the fishing boats that at one time would go whaling and kill them. But they have forgiven us. And It's because of that reason, the fact that they've gone from fearing us to forgiving us and wanting to have interaction with us, that they have to be the best wildlife encounter in the world. So I hope that's added at least one or two places to your wish list. But I warn you, wildlife encounters like these are utterly, utterly addictive and travelling in search of them will likely end up costing you a fortune as you go in search of more and more. Something that doesn't have to cost the earth, however, is good travel gear, which leads me to nicely to my gear section, which is presented to you now in association with Rohan. This episode, we're talking hoodies, and I don't mean the dodgy teens hanging around on the street corners at night. I mean a travel hoodie that will keep you warm on a plane or a long bus ride and offer you protection from the sun. So what should you look for when you're buying one? Well, weight, of course, to keep your weight down with the luggage restrictions getting tighter all the time. Um, You want fabric that doesn't crease, that's quick to dry, that moves sweat away from your body. You want to consider if you really need all those pockets. You know, how many is enough for you? And you want to keep comfort in mind. Make sure you get something that fits you well. Well, the hoodie I took with me to Florida was Rohan's Women's Trail Hooded Top, which retails at £70. There is a man's slightly similar version, but it's not hooded. Um, It's called uh, the Men's Trail Top. Um, And don't forget, when I was in Florida, this was January, so even though it was warm in the day, in the evening and early morning it was cool, and so a hoodie was vital for this. So did it hold up to the test? Well, I'm pleased to report it did. So first things first, this is a zipless hoodie, which I really like the simplicity of, and of course, not having a zip kept it lightweight. It had um, a UPF, which is a fancy way for saying sun protection, of 40 plus. So that's really good. Um, It was very light. It was 195 grams. So one of the lightest hoodies you can get. And I really found the, the, um, the fabric was really good, really soft, 
really stretchy and they say it has a dry time of three hours to be fair I got it soaking wet when I went kayaking and I found it dried within two so really good for that um it also wicked sweat away really really well um it has a scooped hem so when I was kind of leaning forward taking photographs it didn't rise up um and I like the way it had one concealed pocket on the side that was all I needed it was enough to keep my phone in or my passport in or my my ticket in or my car keys um the hood isn't adjustable but then you know this was a warm climate it wasn't particularly windy so i just found it really good for warmth and they had thumb loops on the sleeves which meant a really good and close fit i'd say all in all for my florida trip it worked really well it is a great just in case hoodie to take with you on other trips um especially when it's generally warmer i think you could take it if you're going somewhere cold but it would then act as one layer of several others um it certainly came into its own though this one because it was impregnated with an insect repellent and when i was in the wetlands especially i noticeably saw the the biting flies staying away from me so i have to say thank you very much for the hoodie thanks for your support rohan um as i head off on my travels now anyone who knows me knows i love a good walk i mean that's part of the reason i got my name wonder woman but though I've done my fair share of hiking, I perhaps have a little way to go before I reach the lengths my special guest for this month's podcast has. So you're listening to the Wonder Woman podcast with me, Phoebe Smith, and I'm joined by what I can only describe as a wonder man, um, <laughs> Leveson Wood, um, who obviously is known for wandering quite literally all over the world. Hello, Lev. Hello there. I've not been called a wonder man before. <laughs> well, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> so of all your wonders, which has been the utter, like, I have, if I had to do one again, which would I do? Oh, that's a good one. Um, one of the most fun trips I've ever done, and I'm just talking pure enjoyment yeah. and rewarding, was in 2010, me and a group of mates bought a couple of old Land Cruisers off eBay. Okay. And we drove them from... UK all the way down to Malawi in southern Africa. Wow. And we did them up. They were really cheap and broken. <laughs> I taught myself the basics of mechanics. Yeah. And we painted them white because we we're going to donate them as ambulances to a charity down there. And it was such fun because there was about 15 of us. Yeah. There's only five of us did the whole journey and other people sort of came in for like a week here and a week there. But it was amazing. We drove through 27 countries. Wow. And it was, it, you know, it wasn't filmed. I wasn't writing a book about it or anything like that. But it was just really good to be with my mates on this amazing overland journey um, through three continents. And it was almost adventure for adventure's sake. It was, but with a bit of a, a sort of. A there was a mission angle. there too. Yeah. yeah, but it was. It was. We had no fixed uh, sort of itinerary other than we've got to get there. Yeah, and um, and we did. It was such an adventure. It was great. Well, and the thing you mentioned as well about um, you know there was a deeper purpose because you were delivering these as, as ambulances. Now I found as I've got older and we're more or less the same age. I've started to think more about what can I do when I travel to make a difference? Like, what can I... So I got into reporting wildlife conservation issues because I think, like you've said before, you know, exposing these things are a way you can change them. You've got involved in some charity work too. What in particular are the, the areas that you're kind of focusing on? Hmm. I think, well, for me, I, I sort of try and... I spread myself between a few different charities. I mean, my 
all my background means that I'm quite heavily involved in a number of veterans charities, yeah. um, raising funds and awareness um, and providing opportunities for injured soldiers, for mental health, you know, people with mental health issues, PTSD and so on. Yeah. I think it's a really important um, subject for me to, to try and help where I can. Um, but also, I'm like yourself, really interested in conservation. I've been a, an ambassador for Tusk, um, which has enabled me to go and see some of their projects on the ground. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's a really difficult battle to fight is, you know, wildlife conservation, particularly in Africa, where there is such an enormous human wildlife conflict. There is lots of different agendas. You've got outside influences, you know, poaching and horn and rhino um rhino sort of horns and, and elephant tusks going to the far east so there's it's a very difficult one to, to, to well and you have such extreme poverty and so often it's easy to think for these people you know they don't want to hurt this wildlife it's a short-term win for them because they'll get given this huge lump sum to help poach this animal yeah. but actually it's sort of our job in a way to show pe- to show the local people that their value is for them to be alive because it will bring tourists there absolutely i think you know i've said this across different forums is tourism is a really valuable um industry you know it brings not only much needed you know tourist dollars into mm. local people's pockets but it also does um it makes us more connected as, as a world it, it you know raises issues and, and highlights really important causes around the world so i think you know i think it's a valuable industry to be involved in and like you said before you know it's from the outside looking in people could look at us and say, you've got the best jobs in the world. We know that's not actually true. It's quite stressful sometimes. Um, how do you deal with life on the road? Because it is quite, it's trying, isn't it? Continuously living out of a, of a, of a case or a backpack or what have you. Um, and also writing at the same time too, which I know you do, because your books, you have a really quick turnaround that you have to get them out there. So what's your process for that? Do you take lots of notes? Are you constantly writing? Do you allow yourself downtime? Well, I, I'll be honest, the last five or six years, I really haven't. I mean, it's been a sort of almost a conveyor belt of go away for whatever, six, seven, eight months mm-hmm. back. You know, I start writing immediately. I, I usually try and do the write the books within two months. It's wow. an eight-week turnaround, which really is just a case of discipline, sitting down, writing, not giving yourself the luxury of, of time. And, and generally, if you... You know, if you've promised the publishers it's got to be done, then you don't really have much choice in that. <laughs> um, Nothing like a deadline to sharpen well, the senses. Well, exactly. And, and actually, I found that the, the only way I can write, if I give myself 12 months, I'll take 12 months. If I give myself two months, I'll do it in two months. Yeah. So that's kind of... But, but with that, then you're sort of immediately planning the next journey. So the last few years have been really quite intense. Um, but I must, you know, I can't complain. I've had an amazing time. It's been a really wild ride. But, but no, this this year I've, I'm going to try and. I think you have to. If you've got a very busy schedule, you have to factor in time for yourself and a bit of downtime. So I'm going to try and actually do some normal holidays. I think. <laughs> What's one of those? <laughs> Hopefully, I'll find out. And is there somewhere when you're back home here in the UK that you like to go walking? Have you got like a sort of a, a secret love wood? woodland walk or something perhaps <laughs> well there's a few actually i mean I, i'm originally from staffordshire moorlands so i'm on the, on the edge of the peak district so I, whenever i go home uh, and see my parents then i'll try and go for a little walk up in the peak district um i spent quite a lot of time with the army down in the brecon beacons in south wales okay. and that's still a beautiful place to go to um and the scottish highlands you know but you know if i've got a weekend and i'm not you know, doing anything, and I'll often just go down to the New Forest or the South Downs and, you know, just, just go for a little stroll. It's great. And is there one place in the world that you haven't managed to get to yet that is 
you have to get there. It's this burning desire, this itch to scratch. Uh, yes, the Galapagos Islands. I'd really, oh, really want to go there. Um, I want to see the wildlife. And yeah, so that's definitely high up on the, on the list. And final question. What's the one piece of travel gear you cannot travel without? <laughs> so it probably should be something quite practical, like a compass. But actually, I, I always go with one clean white linen shirt. Really? Yeah, it's important to... Sometimes, you know, you, you, I'm on a mountain or in the jungle and you bump into, like, a, the police checkpoint and you often sort of get dragged in to go and meet an ambassador or some sort of VIP. I mean, in the Himalayas, I, I was requested to go and see the, the Dalai Lama. Nice name drop. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Shameless. So, it's, you know, and sometimes those jungle rags just won't do. So you've got to kind of have, at least, you know, even if you're on an expedition, have one, you know, one bit of clothing that's at least a bit smart, you know. Maybe a clean pair of pants? Well, you know, there you can't turn, see them. Turn them the other way around. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Lev. It's been a pleasure to talk to My you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was Leveson Wood, who I caught up with earlier this year after grilling him live on stage at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at the Destination Show. Thanks, guys, for letting me loose and to Lev for being a good sport when I asked him some very tricky questions. Well, we're nearly at the end of the episode. All that's left is for me to reveal who the Wonder Woman of the Month is this time. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you have, please do subscribe so you never miss an episode and do consider leaving a review. It really does help. You can follow me on Twitter, of course, and Instagram. I'm at Phoebe R. Smith, where you can also comment and suggest uh, future themes and topics I cover. And do go to my website, phoebe-smith.com, for any of my latest news and also you can get in touch there as well do check out my friends at rohan.co.uk where you can enter the promo code wwn9 to receive a 10 percent discount at the checkout now without further ado here's the traveler who should be a household name but few will have heard of introducing my wonder woman of the month the year was 1919 100 years ago. About to hit the shelves was a book which for the first time would seek to explain the cultural meaning behind the giant Moe statues of Easter Island. Its name was The Mystery of Easter Island and the author, a Victorian lady called Catherine Rutledge. She set sail on a ship she'd commissioned and had built from scratch with the aim to sail from the UK where she was from all the way over to Chile's most far-flung island. To understand how far that is, even today, to get to Easter Island, it's an additional five-hour flight from Santiago, the country's capital. She called her ship Mana, named after the Polynesian word for magic. And in 1913, she boarded the vessel with her husband, William Scoresby and a small crew. It took months for them to arrive, but once they did, Catherine found herself captivated by the place and perhaps more importantly, by the people. While her husband and the other men were obsessed with capturing factual data such as placement of the Moe measurements and all that kind of stuff, Catherine was more intrigued by the people behind them When an insurance issue came to head with the boat, she sent most of them off to mainland Chile to sort it, including her husband. 
During that time, she lived out in the field wild camping and worked with a local man called Juan Tapano, tirelessly interviewing the older people, the only generation that were left from those who still erected the giant heads. It's from this work that she managed to save so much history about the Rapa Nui people that would otherwise have been lost forever. So why don't we all know her name? Well, a couple of years after returning, Catherine and her husband didn't seem to get on and he eventually had her locked up in an asylum against her will, claiming that witch doctors had got to her. Some say she was a schizophrenic. I feel, though, looking at the facts, it could have been much more complicated than that and much more to do with several factors, including being torn away from the island and a local man with whom she is rumoured to have fallen in love with, rejected by her husband back in London, battling menopause and depression, and especially the way the Victorians dealt with issues like that. But no matter what, it's because of how she ended her days that she's been forgotten, when surely it should be through the work she did do when she was alive that is still used by archaeologists and ethnologists when studying the secrets of Easter Island, for which she should be remembered. A woman setting off on a journey like that would have been completely against the norm of the time. But thank goodness she did. Otherwise, our knowledge of the place, and more importantly, the people, would be that much poorer. One thing I did take heart from on my visit there was that at least the local people regard her as something of a celebrity. Another thing that struck me was how the Moe are all lying in the dirt as they were left by the old tribes, apart from a few which have been reconstructed and more and more are slowly being reconstructed too. Now the way I see it, if the statues are seen to be worthy of resurrection, then I think the name Catherine Rutledge is overdue a resurrection too. And that's why Catherine Rutledge is this episode's Wonder Woman of the Month. Thank you so much for listening to the Wonder Woman podcast with me, Phoebe Smith. Join me next episode when I'll be taking South Africa's blue train as it moves from being a one to a two night experience. I meet and speak to the first female scuba dive instructor in Jordan. There's still only two there and learn what she was up against when she broke through social norms and actually said she wanted to learn how to dive. I catch up with the lost then found again explorer, who else but Benedict Allen, and I look into the ways that you can beat jet lag, plus much, much more. See you then. Until next time, Wonder Woman out. The Wonder Woman podcast is written and edited by me, Phoebe Smith. The producer for this episode is Daniel Nielsen. The wonderful logo was designed by John Summerton, and the photograph is by Claire Roadley. Thanks to our partner, Rohan, and a final thanks to all the people I met on my journey and were willing to talk to me. It's because of you that this podcast is able to happen at all. Hello, my name is Phoebe Smith, and I want to tell you about my book, Wayfarer. Love, loss and life on Britain's ancient paths. Wayfarer tells the story of how I lost my way and found it again by walking the ancient pilgrim paths in Britain and elsewhere. Along my journey, I found hope 
confronted past experiences and learned more about myself than I ever thought I would. My book, Wayfarer, is out now and available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook.